Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 5. And as we uh, make good progress through our study in the book of Galatians, we come this morning to Galatians 5, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 15. Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your Bibles open and to be reading along there with me in them. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of Scripture and uh, reading Galatians 5, verses 1 to 15 this morning. Before we do read God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask His blessing and the work of His Spirit in our hearts as His Word is preached this morning. Let's pray. Father, we look to You as children look to their father, as a servant looks to the hand of his master. We look to You, Lord. We pray this morning that we would live and that we would be blessed in the preaching and the hearing of your word. If it be your will, we know, Father, that it is your will that your people be sanctified, that we be built up in Christ, that we be kept close to him. We thank you, Father, that you are preserving and keeping your people from error, both morally and doctrinally. We pray that you would establish us. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would make us zealous for your word, that we would desire it as that greatest portion of our souls. We pray that Christ would be exalted this morning, that the gospel would be understood and believed and embraced and cherished, that your word would be hidden in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, do what we can never do in and of ourselves in the souls of each one here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, clearly Paul is saying, if you look and accept circumcision for justification, he's not saying everybody who's circumcised doesn't get Christ. He's saying if you're trusting in that, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed or estranged from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish... Those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, literally, that they would circumcise themselves out of the covenant community. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the, for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
Well, this week I was listening to a pretty interesting interview, probably from the 40s or 50s, with um, Ayn Rand, the American novelist and political philosopher. The title of the interview was The Politics of a Free Society. Rand had done much work on defining free society, what was good about free society, what might not be good about free society, what misconceptions we might have about freedom as a whole, especially with regard to politics and economics. And Rand, who herself was a huge defender of the Constitution and freedom and free society, had two criticisms of the Constitution, which I found interesting. She thought, first of all, that the Constitution overstepped its bounds and had an internal contradiction with regard to the right of eminent domain, that the government could take property from an individual and give it to someone else at a just price whenever they wanted to. Rand also went on to criticize the Constitution for teaching a subtle, implicit defense of slavery, slave owning thought they were interesting. I don't know if I agree with everything that she said. And whether or not you do, the interesting point about what Rand was doing was she was defining very carefully what freedom is and what freedom ought to produce and what freedom ought to look like. It's very noble, actually, not just to adopt what you've been told, not to just adopt what you think, but to actually think critically about what something is. Anne was thinking critically about what freedom is, what it should look like, and what it should produce in a society. Well, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul, in this chapter, is picking back up on that theme of freedom. The book of Galatians could, in one very real sense, be called the book of the freedom that we have in the gospel of Jesus by faith alone. That would be a long title. But Paul starts this book off by saying, Christ delivered us from this present evil age. The idea of being freed, set free from bondage, set free from the law's condemnation, the law's rule, the dominion of sin, all of the things that man by nature is in bondage to, the apostle has said Christ has freed us from. Paul has picked up on that theme repeatedly in this book, and it's good for us to note that. And he's just told us that allegory between the bondwoman and the free woman, and the son of the bondwoman and the son of the free woman, and he's just told the Galatians, you who believe are sons of freedom. You are sons of the free woman. You are free. And if we in any way try to add anything to the finished work of Jesus, we bring ourselves back under bondage and make ourselves slaves. If in any way we are trusting in anything, the Galatians were trusting in circumcision, they were trusting in the ceremonial laws of the Mosaic Covenant, they were trusting in that as a system of salvation in addition to Christ. Paul will go on to say that the Gentiles in this congregation who had been redeemed who had been purchased by Christ, who had been set free, were formerly in bondage to pagan practices. That all men by nature are in bondage. All men are in bondage. Everybody's enslaved to something. Actually, Paul will go on to say the freedom we actually have in Christ is freedom not to sin. It's actually enslavement to Christ. Gracious enslavement is the definition of freedom that Paul will give here in Galatians 5. Well, this morning I'm going to just point out three things. I borrowed an outline from Eric Alexander First, Paul is going to tell the Galatians we must not lose the freedom that we have through faith in Christ. Secondly, he's going to tell them we must not abuse the freedom that we have by faith in Christ. And finally, he's going to tell us we must use the freedom. We must not lose it, we must not abuse it, but we must learn how to use the freedom that we have in Christ. Notice how he opens this transition from chapter 4 to 5. He says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. The whole point of what Christ did, the whole point of Christ coming in time and space, being born of a virgin, being born under the law, becoming a curse for us was to set people free. 
Jesus had said in John 8, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus had come to set captives free. In his first sermon in Luke 4, Jesus said, quoting Isaiah 61, that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives. He had come to proclaim good news to those that were in bondage to sin to say, I have come to set you free from dominion of sin and Satan and the world and the law and the condemnation of the law and all of those things that hold natural fallen sinful men in bondage. Jesus came to set people free. And so Paul says, reminding them again, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, there's a very real sense, and I've said this before in the series, that Paul sees a danger of those who have professed faith in Christ in departing from Christ and putting them back under bondage. You can't lose your salvation. Scripture's very clear about that. But there's a very real danger of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, made a profession of faith, said, yes, I believe that he's my Savior. Yes, I believe I need him for the forgiveness of sins, and then putting them back under some legal system of salvation. And Paul is constantly saying, don't lose your freedom. Why would you do that? Why would you give up the freedom that you have in Jesus? Why would you ever give up the greatest privilege that anyone ever has? And remember, he's speaking to Gentiles who have believed, who are now being led astray by Jewish false brethren who are saying you need Christ plus the Mosaic Law. Now, these Gentiles were never in bondage to the Mosaic Law. They they weren't Jews. They were Gentiles. But Paul's saying going into that form of work salvation, self-justification is just the same as what you did when you had your pagan practices and were religious in the pagan world. It's all bondage. It's all slavery. doesn't matter how nice people say they are. There are many people that are more uh, moral than I am in some respects, externally nicer, kinder, more, ca- more caring, more thoughtful, and they will go to hell because they don't know Jesus. Nicer than you, and they will go to hell because they don't know Jesus. God will send a nice person to hell as quickly as a very wicked man or woman. Whoever is not in Jesus, has not been set free by his grace, is not clothed in his righteousness, will perish. It doesn't matter what you do. Any system of works righteousness, anything you're trusting in that you're doing, Paul says, is bondage. It's bondage. I, I for one, don't understand how people don't love hearing that. Because when I sin, and I feel condemned, and I know I need Christ, and I know I need to repent, and you have the burden of a guilty conscience, and you know you can't ever get rid of that except through him, I don't understand how someone that won't look to him lives with a guilty conscience, with the burden of all their mistakes, all their failures. Paul's going to go on and actually say that those who are trusting in what they do actually aren't keeping the law. They're actually not living out the law of God through love. They're actually not obeying God. They're they're actually in bondage to their own passions and lusts. He'll he'll work that out through the, the flesh spirit comparison the rest of the chapter but notice what paul says he says don't lose the freedom that you have in christ by faith alone notice in verse two he says look i paul say to you that if you accept circumcision christ will be of no advantage to you very clearly what paul is saying is you either get all of christ or you get none of christ you can't get 90 percent of jesus you don't get 99.9 percent of jesus you either get 100 percent christ or you get nothing that's it If you trust circumcision, if you trust in your good works, if you trust in anything that you're doing for acceptance with God, you get nothing. You get nothing. You may hope, you may have vain and futile hopes that you're going to somehow, maybe I'm wrong in what I'm telling you. Paul's very clear. Christ is not going to share his glory with another. 
He will not share his glory with another. He is either complete Savior, you either get all of Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, or you get none of Christ. Paul says, if you accept circumcision as a system of salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, here's the irony. What Paul's going to do in telling us not to lose the freedom we have in Christ, he's going to draw out the implications of that freedom. He's going to say, listen, here's what it means to be free. Here's what it means to be in bondage. This is the reality. If you want to work for God's salvation, if you want to be a good enough person for God to accept you, then you need to keep the whole law. That's what Paul says. Perfect, perpetual, continual, exact, down to the minutest detail. You must keep the law perfectly. Because if God didn't demand that, he would be evil. And if he was evil, we're all in big trouble. He's holy. We're not holy. He is going to demand perfect obedience to his law. His commands must be kept. He can't wink at sin. God cannot wink at sin. And so anyone trusting in what they're doing, and the Judaizers were doing that, Paul reminds them, Look, if they want the outcome of what they're trusting in, then they are a debtor to keep the whole law. They're a debtor to obey it in every exact, precise way that the law called for. And then, notice what Paul says in verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, Paul is not saying you once had the grace of God and now you don't. What he's saying is, Those who once professed faith in Jesus, once professed that he was the complete Savior, and then turned to a system of works righteousness, they were never saved, and they have turned away from the offered grace of God in the gospel. And Paul is saying, you are severed from Christ. You have nothing to do with Christ. You can't have Christ plus something. Christ plus something equals nothing. Christ plus anything equals nothing. And notice what Paul says then, as he continues to develop this warning not to lose not to lose the freedom notice what he says in contrast to those who have turned back to circumcision in their own works in verse 5 he says for we through the spirit by faith eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness in contrast to those trusting their own works those who are trusting Christ alone have the hope of everything that those that are justified have set before them they have the hope of standing perfect in judgment day Bold I stand on that great day, clothed in his righteousness. That's the only thing that's going to matter on the day of judgment is if you're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to enable you to stand on judgment day is if you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul says, if you are, then you have that sure and steadfast hope set before you that what he has done is sufficient, that you will make it to your eternal rest. The irony is this. If you trust in what you do, there's no assurance. Your hope is futile. You have nothing to substantiate your hopes. If you trust in Jesus, your hope is certain and sure and perfect and comforting and soul-stabilizing. It is the outcome. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone, you have a sure and certain hope. I don't know about you. There's one thing I want. I want assurance that I'm going to heaven. I don't know what your thoughts are throughout the day, 24 hours a day. I have a thought that pervades my thoughts. I want to go to heaven. I do not want to perish. And God says, we, through the Spirit, by faith, wait for the righteousness, the hope of the righteousness we have in Jesus. That is a guaranteed hope for you. If you're in Jesus, if you're trusting him for salvation alone, you have a sure and certain hope before you. That's the implications of freedom that we have in Christ. You're free from the condemnation of the law. That's Paul's whole point in Romans 8. 
There's no condemnation for those in Christ because we're free in him because he has accomplished all things. He has kept the law's demands. He has kept it perfectly. He has taken the curse. He has become a curse for us. He has done everything so that we might be eternally safe in his presence for all eternity. We have a sure and steadfast hope that we wait for by faith, produced by the Spirit. And then notice what he says in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, I'm going to come back to this because there are many commentators who are going to tell you that justification is by faith plus love. It's by faith working together with love. They're going to go to the book of James. They're going to basically slide a Roman Catholic doctrine under your door. And many people believe that. Yesterday, I had um, quite a few exchanges with a guy who probably is going to become Roman Catholic on this very issue and how this verse, which Luther and Calvin and the Puritans and all the other Protestants and everybody else that got the gospel said is not teaching justification by faith plus love. It's not what it's teaching. Paul's talking about implications. He's talking about what matters. He's talking about the reality of the life of faith, that if you have faith that justifies you, it will work together with love. That's what matters. That's what God wants. God doesn't want you trying in your own strength to establish something. He wants you to rest in Jesus and see that true and living faith worked out in a life of love. That's what, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't, don't lose the freedom. And then notice in 7 and following that Paul goes on and he continues this discourse, and his language is hard at times. Paul's language is sometimes even scathing. I often think many people in the church, they would not like to listen to Paul because his letters are weighty. They're hard. He says many things that are strong and serious. Paul knows the eternal implications of these things. Paul says, look, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him and calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. What Paul is saying is, listen, it doesn't take much to lead somebody astray. It doesn't take much false teaching. In fact, it, it really only took a little insistence on a covenant sign from the old covenant to lead all these people away from Christ. It doesn't take much. It doesn't take a whole systematic theology that's different from your systematic theology. It doesn't take, it doesn't take the most articulate wise, winsome, eloquent person to lead you away from Jesus. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we are to think of false teaching as small as it may seem in the realm of salvation, especially in justification, as leaven that will destroy a person. I have this year, more than ever in my life, I don't think I ever had this thought in my life before this year, I am not strong enough in myself to keep myself from doctrinal error. All of us would admit we could fall into any kind of sin, moral sin. Any, anybody that says they can't doesn't know their heart. Paul says, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. I could commit any sin. King David murdered a man, impregnated his wife. Scott, he was man after God's own heart. If you think you can't do that, you are de deceived and, de and you are completely deceived. And Paul says, listen, a little leaven, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Doctrinally, not just morally, doctrinally, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then he says in verse 10, I have confidence. Now, here's where it's interesting. Paul is going from don't lose, don't lose the freedom you have in Christ to now he's going he's gonna to kind of start to transition. In verse 10, it seems like he's contradicting what he just said. In verse 10, he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. 
Now, Paul doesn't say, I have confidence in you that you'll have no other mind. He says, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will take no other mind. Paul knew that God could sustain them. Paul knew that what could keep them from doctrinal error, from that leaven that could leaven them, was the grace of God. He knew that in the Lord, in Christ, they could be kept, they could be restored. He knew that Christ himself was orchestrating all things, that he was overseeing the spiritual well-being of his people, even those who were being deceived. Christ is in control. You know, I love, I love the story of Simon Peter, right before he denies Jesus, boastful, self-confident Simon Peter. I'll never deny you, and I'll go wherever you go, Jesus. And, and Jesus says, will you? You're going to deny me three times, Peter. You're going to deny, before, before this night's over and the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And, and then Jesus says to him in that same context, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. The key to not losing the freedom we have in Christ is to know is to know Christ and to know that Christ prays for his people and keeps his people. Paul can say, I have confidence for you in the Lord. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but let him who troubles you bear his own penalty, whoever he is. These were professing believers. These were men and women that had professed their need for the Savior. And Paul is treating them according to that profession. Paul's treating them as those that he is hoping truly belong to Jesus. And if they do, the seeming deception that they've fallen into will not be permanent. And look, we ought to take great comfort in that. And if we have loved ones who seem to be deceived into some kind of false teaching, they've made a profession of faith in Jesus, now they're getting into some weird teaching somewhere, remember, if they belong to the Lord and pray accordingly, that God will restore them, have mercy on them, show them the truth, lead them out of out of the bondage that they're going back to. Notice, secondly, though, that Paul goes on and he says, we must not abuse the freedom that we have in Christ. You'll see first that Paul says that in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now Paul's picking back up on verse 6, faith working through love. Paul is anticipating, in a sense, the objection. Somebody may say, Paul, you've said it's by faith alone. It's not by anything that I do. I can't add anything to the finished work of Jesus. It's only by faith. So you're saying I can live any way I want to. And Paul's saying, no, no. What I'm saying is don't abuse the freedom that you have in Christ. You don't have freedom to sin. You have freedom from sin. And Paul's going to say true freedom is freedom from sin. I often worry that our definition of freedom is so shaped by American individualism, materialism, and everything else. I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have the right to make money. I have the right to do this. And Paul says the freedom we have in Christ is the freedom to obey and love Jesus and serve one another in love. It's not I, I, I. It's we, we, we. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying the life of faith in Christ is worked out through love in serving one another. We're free... We're free to obey God, and primarily, I think Paul is going to now take us in and say, on the horizontal plane, how does the life of faith work itself out primarily in our relationships, how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another, what we do, what we say, what we think, how we pray for one another, how we care for the needs, how we bear the burdens of one another. You see a brother and sister having a burden, Paul will say, do you take that up? You see one fall into sin, Paul will say, do you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness? Or do you think about yourself? The Judaizers were thinking about themselves. That's what marked them. They wanted to build a great name for themselves. They thought about themselves. And what they did was they put schism in the church. Paul's going to say, don't abuse your freedom because what 
had happened was they had thought, oh, well, yeah, I'm free. And then they had been led astray and then division had come into the church. And notice what Paul ends this section with in verse 15. If you bite and devour one another like a lion or dogs fighting in some village in Africa, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul is concerned with saying now, if you're in Christ by faith alone, not by love, working with faith, but if you're in Christ by faith alone, that faith must manifest itself in a life of Christian holiness and love, and that is true liberty. Just a helpful illustration, husbands and wives. At home, when you're at home and you have agendas, you have things to do, and husbands, you think, man, I really want to watch this game or this movie, or I want to go do this, and I want to go hang out with this guy, and your wife has a a sink full of dishes, and she's got her hands full with all kinds of stuff, and you go do what you want to do. That doesn't produce a whole lot of liberty and freedom and joy in the home. But when you sacrifice because you love your wife, because you love the Lord, and you know the Lord wants you to care for your wife, and you sacrifice what you want to do, and you serve out of love to Christ, not trying to gain favor by being a nice person, but out of love to Christ, out of gratitude, and you serve husbands, your wives, and care for them, there is love and gratitude and mutual joy and freedom in the marriage relationship. That's just one illustration of how it works. I'm not trying to gain God's favor by what we do, but the liberty we have in Christ comes through a life of faith in Christ working out through love. Let me ask you this question. Don't abuse your liberty. Paul's, Paul's sense of abusing the liberty is not living in sin per se. It's in not loving and caring for one another and biting, devouring one another. How quick are you to speak evil of others in the body of Christ? How quick are you to point out flaws in others? Look, I'm asking myself this. How quick are you to put someone down privately? How quick are you to complain about something? How quick are you to assert yourself and assert your own desires? Look, that is what Paul's saying abuse of the freedom we have in Christ looks like. If we in the covenant community are quick to assert ourselves, our own desires, our own interests, our own concerns and criticisms, and we are not interested in serving one another in love, how do I know we have faith? How do you know you have faith in Christ? Because, Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers, verse 13, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now, third point, quickly, use your freedom that you have by faith in Christ. Don't lose it. Be careful not to abuse it. Use your freedom that you have by faith in Jesus. And notice, notice what Paul says. He says, through love, serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, obviously, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength is the first and great commandment. And love your neighbor as yourself is the second like unto it. But they are inseparable. First John is going to say, how can you say you love God who you don't see when you don't love your neighbor whom you see? And Jesus said, in one of the most marvelous things our, our Lord ever said, the world will know that you're my disciple by the love that you have for one another. Listen, the world is watching. People in the church are watching. We watch each other. We see interactions. The world will know that you are Christ's disciple by the love that you have for one another. Look, you are free in Christ. You're free from the condemnation of the law. This morning, if you're in Jesus, you're free. 
There's no judgment. You've passed from death to life. You have been judged in the death of Jesus. All the judgment of God has been placed on His Son. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are free. You are free from sin's power. You're not a slave to sin. You don't need to be mastered by sin. That has great implications. You're free from guilt and shame. You are free in Jesus Christ, but you are now free to live out the life of faith working through love. You know, I think I have a lot of conversations with many of you about these these topics. I think it is far easier for us to fixate on performance, religious things, activities, even church service, when God says, love one another. That that is what he wants. Love is the motivating principle behind all that we do. If I don't speak to you in love, if you don't speak to me in love, how is it that we have faith in Christ? How is it that we're new creatures? That's the litmus test. It's not how we're justified. It's not how we're adopted. It's the evidence. It's the litmus test. Yes, we have bad days. Yes, I agree. We bite and devour each other. That's why Paul has to say, stop doing it. But you're free in Christ. You're free to serve and love one another. And that's very important to the heart of God. No, I love, and I'll close with this. I love when Peter's writing to women and he says that what's very precious to God, ladies, is a gentle and a quiet spirit. That somehow the God of heaven and earth, who doesn't need anything, loves a gentle and a quiet spirit in his daughters, in those women that he's redeemed. What he loves in us is a life of faith working out through love, the freedom that we have in Christ exhibited. God loves that. He loves when the gospel so transforms our lives that we go from being cantankerous, complaining, discontent people to being self-sacrificing, caring, loving, tender people. Look, it's got to start with me. I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching to us. But this is God's heart for us. And you know what? I know if New Covenant Presbyterian Church, you're all free if you're in Christ Jesus. I know that if we start pursuing this, the ramifications for that are going to be incredible. People are going to see, they're going to know we're Jesus' disciples. And it's going to produce freedom and joy in this congregation that maybe we haven't even experienced. You know, people's marriages go from bad to better all the time when people start loving and sacrificing. Faith working through love is the freedom to which we've been called in the life of the covenant community. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, I and your people here need these words so desperately. We are so often bringing ourselves back under the bondage of attempts at self-justification, at um, at thinking that we are better than others, at at looking down at others instead of loving and caring for others. We thank you that you have set us free. We thank you for the implications of freedom, that if we are free in you, Lord Jesus, we are free to live a life of faith working through love. We thank you that we wait and we do not work for, but we wait for that hope of righteousness. We thank you, Father, that you have given us everything in Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you live that perfect life of love. We pray that you would cause the fruits of the Spirit to be born in us today by faith, Father. We pray that you would transform this congregation through the gospel, through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we might look 
something like what you want your church to look like in this world. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. We pray that we would know the joy and peace, the freedom of the gospel today. We pray these things in your name. Amen.